With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're home alone. You have an uneasy feeling in the darkness. Like someone or something is watching you. Why is it suddenly cold in this room? You hear footsteps, whispers, or even laughter. <laughs> You go to check. You feel a presence behind you. And then the fear sets in. I'm K-Town, and you're listening to Paranormal Fears. My name is Jeff Belanger, and I research and write about the paranormal. And I've pretty much been interested in it my whole life. Uh, as I mentioned, growing up with Ed and Lorraine Warren, um, you know, I knew them since I was 13. And I always wanted to be a writer. I wanted to – I went to school to be a writer, and I started working as a journalist and started writing for newspapers and magazines. And I got hooked on uh, the, the Halloween feature story. I always thought those were, were just so much fun to write. And then that turned into a website called ghostvillage.com that I started in 1999. Then I started writing books. And then uh, I, I when the Ghost Adventures series started on the Travel Channel, I was the writer and researcher for the first episode. And I've been doing that ever since. <laughs> for 14 years, we've been going. So uh, every episode of Ghost Adventures I've worked on as a, a writer and researcher and uh, you know, I've written my own books. I also, you know, appear on various series and shows and shock docs. And I'm just so blessed that I get to do this full time. It is amazing. Let me ask you something. I mean, um, I've read some things about Connecticut and some of those states up there in the northeastern part of the United States. Is it really I mean, are hauntings really prevalent up there, up your way? Sure. But but also I think uh, and I, I get to travel all around. Uh, I don't think we have more hauntings than somewhere else, but I think in New England, we're more open to talk about it. And the reason for that is because there's such a sense of preservation around here with our buildings and with our history. You know, when you drive down the main streets of our small towns, I mean, that's what it looked like 200 years ago. You know, that house was still green. It looked like that. You know, it's been preserved all these years. And the town hall looked just like that. There were a few less Dunkin' Donuts back then. Not many. Just a couple less back then, but uh, but you know now we've got electricity and cars, but we we preserve our buildings in other parts of the country. When a building gets to be 40, 50 years old, they tear it down and they build a new one. Um, and so I think we we sort of have this sense, you know, we've got landmarks. We're like, yeah, that's where the first shot of the Revolutionary War was fired, and and that's where you know the, that's where the you know the Pilgrims landed, and and we 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 track all these things. We keep you know we we honor and preserve them. So telling these stories isn't really much of a a stretch. You know, I think we're a little more matter of fact. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So one thing that I love about 
the area is it seems like you talked about preserving the area. Like I live in Knoxville. They, it seems like they knock down a lot of the old stuff and they want to build new stuff, which is aggravating. Uh, especially since I spent time, you know, over in Europe and, and Germany and I, all those buildings are, you know, just like they were years and years and years ago. Centuries so, ago. Yeah, yeah. Right. Absolutely. So I can totally see why, you know, paranormal activity would be very prevalent up there. I'm wondering though, besides, um, the cases that Ed and Lorraine worked on, you said they were like one street over. Is that what you said? They, they were one town over. So, wow, um, Lorraine Warren went to our church. Uh, I would see her in the grocery store and, you know, we, around October, they would do these lecture programs and uh, we'd go see them in, in the 1980s. They were not, I mean, you know, they would have told you they were international celebrities and to some degree they were, but you know, it, they're way more famous today than they ever were when they were alive. Back then they were regional celebrities and keep in mind in the 1980s there was no, you know, internet where people posted about their local paranormal research group. There was Ed and Lorraine Warren. And when we were kids, I remember there was this place. It was called Superstar Sports. It's long gone. Don't go looking for it. Uh it's you know, it's a place where you buy sporting stuff, baseball gloves and all that kind of stuff. And everybody's like, "Oh, that house on Main Street in Newtown. You know it's haunted." And you'd be like, "Come on. It's they sell tennis rackets and things in there." And it'd say, "No, no, no. Ed and Lorraine Warren looked into it." And that was it. That was the last word, you know, like, oh, OK, well, if they looked into wow. it, it must be haunted. Um, that's how you said a place was haunted around that area back in the 1980s. How did they I'm interested in how they actually started out or what was the case that really put them on the map to be very, you know, recognized? Yeah, for- well, uh, Amityville. Without a question. So um, Amityville was, oh, was it 1975? It was it was mid 70s. Ed and Lorraine Warren were interested in the paranormal. Um, I've interviewed Ed multiple times now. I, I, I've known them, you know, for years. And I, I, you know, the way they got started in all this is that they were sort of fascinated with with haunted places. And Ed would paint them. Ed would sit out front and like paint these houses. And, uh, and then the, the owners would come out and they'd say, oh my gosh, that's, that's great. And they'd say, well, we're really interested in haunted spooky places. Well, we have ghosts and they just sort of started looking into it. And then they started getting recognized in the media, but Amityville, when that happened, that, uh, they jumped on that case and, and who, no, no one knew at the time that that was going to blow up into books and movies and become like probably one of the most internationally known haunts on the planet. Um, so once they got their their foot in the door there, uh, Lorraine Warren being a psychic medium, um, you know, she, she had experiences in there. They took photos in there and all that stuff. And from that point on, uh, people just started calling on them. My house is haunted, too. And so they really worked, especially the northeastern region of the United States. OK, so um, OK, so let me ask you this. Was it someone in the neighborhood that just said um, because Lorraine is like a psychic medium, correct? Yeah. Was there somebody that said, okay, uh, maybe they went to some, I'm just imagining, maybe they went to someone's house and then, and then they were sitting in there talking and said, you know, I think you have, you know, you have spirits in your house and they might've said, you know, can you come over here and see what you can (laughs) find out about my house? I mean, how did that initial first time they actually went in someone's house how did that yeah, happen for them? Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know. I really don't. I just know that it was like, you know, one thing after another. I'm, I'm not the, the highest authority on in Lorraine Warren. I just know from knowing them that once they got known for it, 
um, people started to seek them out. I think my house is haunted too. And if they lived within a reasonable distance that started with phone calls, tell me what's going on, then they would go. And then they, they formed a group, you know, this, and back then 1970s, there was, I mean, there was a couple of paranormal research groups, but not like today, there were no mashing black t-shirts, right? There was no internet. Uh, and, and their phone number was listed by the way. And Lorraine Warren, like it was, uh, I, I'd been in their house once interviewing them for a newspaper. This was after I graduated from college. So probably like 1997, uh, maybe. And, uh, I'm sitting in their kitchen interviewing Ed and the phone just rings and rings, right? It would ring and Lorraine would answer it. Hello. Oh yeah, hon. Oh, oh, that sounds bad. Uh, is there a Ouija board in the house, hon? Oh, you got to get rid of that. Yeah. You got to get rid of that. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. And then the phone would ring again, like almost as fast as she hung it up. And that same conversation, <laughs> the Ouija board would just play. I'm like, you could put that on a recording. You just say the same thing to the next person who calls. But they would get phone calls day and night all the time because everyone knew they were the people you called, especially in that region. Uh, and then, of course, TV came along and the Internet. And then there were dozens of people in television shows. And But they were they were really out there doing this long before other people and very media savvy. They knew to call in the newspapers and magazines and radio and television stations when they were working on haunts. Now, that is smart right there because they were getting their name out. out OK, at that time. So sure. that's, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I imagine that 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 first case or the first cases, maybe she sent something in someone's house and said, OK, we you know, maybe we can help you figure out what's going on. Or I'm just fascinated with the beginnings of of their yeah. career. OK, so let me ask you this. Um, the Amityville, Amityville case. Um, mm-hmm. I've heard so many different, uh, opinions about, you know, that wasn't a really, you know, that wasn't really a haunting or some of that stuff was hoaxed or whatever. Can you tell us what you know about that from your communication with Ed and Lorraine? Uh, I'll do you one better. I conducted the last interview that George Lutz ever gave on Amityville oh. before he died. George Lutz is the, the guy who lived there. Like yeah, that's yeah. his story. And so, um, uh, when, and I went to college on Long Island. So I, I'd been, the first time I saw the Amityville house, I was a freshman in college. And I remember, um, just being like, Whoa, this is the house. Now here's the thing, no matter what you believe or don't believe, here's a fact. Six people were murdered inside that house by their, you know, brother slash son, right? This Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. Walked into that house with a rifle, shot his two parents dead in their bed, went down the hall, shot, each of his two brothers, each of his two sisters, all in their beds. Um, that absolutely happened. And um, and then he was arrested. He he just died in jail. I think it was last year, uh, something like that. So, uh, you know, th- this 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 is a fact. This is what happened back in uh, November of 1974. Then the house sits empty. And as you can imagine, a lot of people don't want it because it's spooky. Like, I don't know if I, I mean, I'm into this stuff. I don't want to live in a house where six people were murdered, you know, like a year ago. Uh, but, but George Lutz comes along with his wife, Kathy and buys the house and they move in and they know what they were getting into. They weren't, you know, fooled or anything. They just figured houses don't have memories to quote George Lutz. And so they, they get in there and a few subtle weird things start to happen. Nothing like the book, nothing like the movies. Real hauntings, as you know, K-Town, are a lot more subtle. I mean, if you walk in and the house is literally bleeding out of the walls and trying to eat you, you know, like Eddie Murphy said in his act, right? Like, too bad we can't stay, right? You just turn around, roll the the credits. (laughs) That'd be the shortest horror movie ever, you know? 
And that's that. We're done. You know, uh, so um, so it's subtle things like one of the things that freaked me out because I get it right. George would say he'd be in bed at night asleep and he'd hear what sounded like a marching band, just sort of like practicing notes and tuning up in his living room. And so he sits up like, what the heck's going on? Is the stereo on? Is someone, you know, blaring music outside and his wife's asleep and he gets up and, and nobody else is stirring. And so he, he hears this getting louder and louder downstairs and he walks down the stairs and he sees his black lab dog dead asleep on the on the bottom step. Now you have to say, like, well, wait a minute. If there was really sound like that, the dog would dog be awake. Yeah. The dog would be yipping and yapping and like, what's going on? Right. But the dog's asleep. And now you got to say, uh oh, is this in my head? Right. Is this just is this just upstairs with me? Is anyone else hearing this? And now you're starting to question your own sanity. And so the family, each of them were sort of, you know, according to George, experiencing these different things. Uh, and finally, they start to talk about it. And it escalates. You know, the, the, the kids are stuck in their bedrooms and they can't get out. That, remember in the movie, The Flies, there was a room with like a swarm of flies. Yeah, in it. on the window uh, and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes. So George said, he's like, no, he's like, there was a room that always had like a fly or two in it. And you'd swat them and kill them. And later on, there'd be another fly. You could never seem to kill them all or find the source. He's like, it was never a swarm. It was just like pesky. A, a little thing. You know what I mean? A swarm. You'd, again, you wouldn't stay in a house with a swarm of flies. You'd let me call ask it you something, though. Okay. Yeah. I, no. Let me ask you. You said something about the kids being stuck in the room. Yeah. Are you saying that at times, so they would try to get out, yep. but the door would be stuck and no one's holding it or no reason for it to be locked or anything like that? Even worse, they're screaming for help and banging on the door, and George and Kathy can't get the door open, according to George. Yeah. So, um, so, and then, and then it would open, and it would be over. Like these, these events were just sort of escalating over the period of four weeks, and then finally, uh, they left. They stayed at Kathy's mother's house to just get away from the house. And George claims they never went back. I've since gotten uh, to talk to on multiple occasions Christopher Lutz, the youngest kid who lived in the house at the time. And, you know, he he claimed his dad made up a lot of stuff, but weird things did happen in that house. So what exactly happened? I'm not sure we're ever going to know unless we were there. But the fact that something happened, uh, I don't know. I believe the multiple Lutz family members who talked about it. Uh, but we also can't deny that after the Lutzes moved out, someone else bought the house, lived there for years and years. And then they left and someone else lived there for years and years. And everybody claims there's no problem. What about OK, so what did Chris tell you he experienced when he was in the house? Chris said uh, his dad was practicing transcendental meditation and was inviting yeah, in heard these mm -hmm. dark forces, right? That's according to Chris. Now, I don't know. What I about meditate. the mom? Was she doing it too? Mm, not that he mentioned. That Now, keep in mind, uh, uh, George was not Chris's father, uh, only stepfather. The uh, Chris, Chris and the kids all were from Kathy in a previous uh, relationship, previous marriage. So, um, so he blamed George for doing transcendental meditation. I've meditated. I never brought any ghosts anywhere. You know, I mean, it's uh, so I, but I don't pretend to know, you know, what exactly was going on in that house. Uh, but, but Chris was bitter, is still bitter about what happened after, because once that story got out. Uh, and it became so famous. I mean, his whole life, he was he was called a liar. You, your family's a bunch of hoaxers. There's no such thing as ghosts. What's wrong with you? I mean, imagine that. Like, they weren't there. Right. And your whole life, you got to carry that albatross around your neck. I mean, it, it was really hard. And I think I think he's been bitter ever since. Let me. OK, so let me ask you this about George. Um, did he say that he saw like um, 
because the movie was wild. Yeah, <laughs> it was I know. really wild. Yeah. Oh, and and you—that's to be expected that they're going to put things in there that really didn't happen, you know, for for entertainment purposes. But did he give you like a percentage of the movie as as uh, you know, in contrast to what really happened? Like, what percentage of it was true and? What percentage I, I mean, it wasn't. not not so much, but like, I mean, everything he described, like the movie took it like tenfold, I you know, you. Yeah. so yeah. It, it and also and then each movie after the first movie got even crazier. Right. Like, so the, the most I interviewed him right before the third movie came out. Uh, and that was, oh, gosh, what year was that? That was um, I, I want to say like 2015, maybe um, where, where the Amityville Horror came out. And uh, that was the Michael Bay version. And and that movie now George had seen the script and saw an advanced copy and uh, we we did hours of interview about everything that happened at Amityville and then he was involved in another lawsuit related to this new movie had a gag order and then he died which is why it ended up being the last interview um, that that he and I spoke there's a scene in the the third movie the Amityville Horror spoiler alert sorry get over it um, <laughs> you ahead. should have seen it by now if you didn't right. So there's a scene in the movie where George Lutz, the character in the movie, takes an axe and hacks up the family dog with the axe, killing it. George Lutz, the man, took great offense to that. He's like, I would never hurt an animal. I would never hurt anybody. That black lab came with us, left the house with us, moved with us to San Diego, lived a long and happy life with doggy treats and belly rubs and scratches and all that other stuff that dogs deserve. He's like... I mean, and imagine if that's you where someone's like, oh, I'm going to portray K-Town taking an axe to a dog. Right. Like, like right. never happened. Not even close. And so, I mean, he just got angrier and angrier his whole life as this this story just kept morphing into something bigger and wilder than it ever was. OK, let me ask you this. Did he ever did he say anything about any other type of paranormal activities, shadow uh, shadow figures, uh, apparitions, oh. doors opening, closing, seeing things. I don't know. Things yeah. that flying across the room. It, Same there, thing like that? Yeah. So there was, I mean, there was poltergeist stuff. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, he had talked about how, uh, at one point a, a window had like closed on one of his son's hands and they were trying to do their own exorcism. They're like saying the Lord's prayer in every room and they're, they're saying these blessings. They're doing what, what they can. George claims he turned to his Catholic faith. Uh, in order to deal with this and was talking to priests and so on. It was the priest who said, maybe you guys should sleep somewhere else for a night and just get a just get a break. Um, and so uh, it, it was mainly it was noises. It was, you know, the, the kids getting uh, petrified. Uh, I think he said at one point, like the bed had levitated on one of their kids. And so things like this that were happening. And the, the strangest thing he said, this this part freaked me out because I've only heard people say this a couple times. And I've interviewed thousands of folks now about their their haunted homes. And he had said, I said, well, you know, you know what happened there, you know, the murders and you're uncomfortable, strange phenomena is going on. I'm like, do you ever do you make an effort to stay out of the house, work long hours, you know, whatever it takes to not come home. And he said, you know what, uh, Kathy, his wife had described it as the, the house was charming. And I went, oh, right, I just got to chill. The house was charming. It, it had a charm to it. You didn't want to leave. And he said he got sick there. He lost weight. Uh, he wasn't himself. Uh, he felt like something was sort of taking him over, slowly oppressing. And once he left, once they spent that first night at Kathy's mother's house, uh, he said it followed them. He said that there was strange things happening in Kathy's mother's house, but it had like a half-life. So every day was like half as bad as the day before. It just got weaker and weaker, and then they figured it must be tied to the house, and that's where it's going to stay. And they they moved to San Diego, the other side of the country. 
Did uh, when they moved in there initially, Jeff, do you know if they left like I'm wondering, like the crime scene, was it clearly I mean, could you clearly see like blood and maybe they left the mattress mattresses there? I don't I don't know. I don't think so. I, okay. I mean, he never mentioned anything about that. And I mean, the house had sat empty for over a year. And if you're a realtor trying to sell it, like you would have had all that taken, oh, care, of. taken care of. Yeah, yeah. You would, I would anyway, I'd be like, scrub this place top to bottom, paint the walls. I want to see no trace of nothing. You know what I mean? Like, cause how else are you going to sell this place? Uh, and by the way, the neighborhood is a really nice upscale neighborhood today. Oh, yeah. And then, I mean, the houses were there then when you see the movie, it looks like it's this lone house on a hill. There's like, I don't know, like a hundred feet between houses and a hundred feet. Like, you know, that's like a third of a football field. Yeah, right? The you houses can, you, are close together. They're close together. Yeah and, yeah. and and right across the street too, there's houses everywhere. I mean, this would be a great trick or treating neighborhood. I mean, for sure, <laughs> you know, yeah. like the houses are close. You could hit a bunch of them, you know? Um, so it's, it's not like this lone house and you don't want one of those houses sitting empty and rotting in this, I mean, it, it sold the last time the house sold. I want to. It was over a million dollars, and not just because it's a famous house, but because that's what the real estate goes for in that expensive town on that expensive street. Let me ask you about maybe paranormal activity uh, in the neighborhood, around the neighborhood, or maybe even in other people's houses. Have you ever heard of anything like that on that street? You mean yeah. on Ocean mm-hmm. Avenue? Yes. I, yeah. I have not heard. And, and and by the way, the the first and second time I was in front of that house. Keep in mind, we were on the street, on the sidewalk, not trespassing, but, and it was June, June, which is an important part of the story. We step out of the house. We just sort of look at it and neighbors start yelling at you immediately. Get out of here. Go away. Right. You're you're not breaking any laws. You're doing nothing wrong during the day. It's not like it's midnight. You know, it's like two in the afternoon, nobody, but nobody. So those houses could be even more haunted than Amityville. I'll bet you a good dinner that they're not going to talk about it. They have enough problems already with, uh you know, the paranormal in that neighborhood. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about Ed and Lorraine Warren and how they got pulled into that investigation. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So, uh, I believe Ed and Lorraine Warren had already sort of started to make a name for themselves, uh, for this house in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, uh, what the heck was the name of the street? Lindley Avenue, I think. So they, they had, uh, there was a, You're talking a crazy about the Bridgeport. Was it poltergeist? The Bridgeport, yeah, so yeah. I think maybe mm-hmm. that's what they had called it. So I think that came before Amityville, and and uh, you know, police were wa- like watching you know refrigerators move on their own, and and Ed and Lorraine Warren get involved, and 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 they're they're holding press conferences, you know, and talking about the ghosts, and suddenly they they get propelled into the spotlight. Amityville happens, and Hans Holzer, the 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 famous, you know, he was he was a guy that was doing it even longer. He was writing books and and had a much bigger name and based in New York City. So not that far from Amityville. And uh, he he sort of passed on the case. He was like, eh, you know, it doesn't sound interesting to me. And Ed, Ed and Lorraine Warren jumped on it. And the thing about Ed and Lorraine Warren is that they they were pretty masterful about like, hey, you know, it, it, it's like, you know, today, if, if you uh, if you go or do something and you don't take a selfie and put it on social media, it doesn't count. <laughs> you yeah. know, like I think the Warrens were like, well, if we go somewhere and we don't call in the press, <laughs> we might not might as well not even have gone. Uh, so they were collecting, you know, newspaper clippings the way we collect likes on our, <laughs> our right, Instagram I get posts. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so so uh, Ed, Ed would work the media and invite in reporters and, and get in photographers and stuff like that. And and uh and talk about it. And Ed would tell you the reason he does all that without apology is because he's a devout Catholic and he was he believes in evil 
And he believes that by exposing the devil and exposing evil and exposing that this stuff is real, that we'll talk about it and confront it better than if we kept it in the closet. And so he said, without apology, I always call in the media. I always work with the media. And that's why. You can totally see how that would make sense. I mean, if people are not hearing about it, maybe they believe, you know, it's not true or it's not real. or sure. maybe It's in their head. So, yeah, that's, that's totally smart of him to do that. Did he did he ever say or him and uh, Lorraine ever say that they felt like demonic activity was maybe on the rise or maybe it was because they were out there, um, you know, investigating these cases and more and more people were hearing about it. Well, so that's the thing. Again, I can't stress enough how Catholic they were. And I, and I was raised Catholic in the interest of full disclosure. And so for Ed and Lorraine Warren, a ghost was one thing. A demon was quite another. And and that's they were pushing demons long before it got popular on TV. You know, like they were they were talking about uh, demonic forces and devil forces and things like that. So um, when they would go into a case, you know, Ed would bring his holy water. He would bring his cross. He would bring, you know, uh, religious, other religious medals and things like that. He would read passages from the Bible, which is funny because I've always been like, and I, again, I was raised Catholic, but I'd be like, what if the ghost was Jewish? <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, what is this with the water? What are you doing? You know, like, so I don't know. But um, I'm like, what if the ghost is like not Catholic and is like, why, why are you just throwing water around? What's that cross? What's that tea thing? It doesn't mean anything to me. Was he reading uh, the rites as well? I mean, was so, he an ordained exorcist? I mean, tell no, me a little bit about No, okay. he was not. Uh, he called himself a lay demonologist. Uh, and said he was the only one recognized by the church. I don't know about that. I, I do know that he worked with clergy. Uh, who and he who would came up you, with demon demonology? Did he do that, or where did that come from? No, a a a, a true G- demonologist. I I I'm you know feel free for someone to check me on this, but uh, I believe you. You have to be an ordained. I think even Catholic, right? Like just right. I mean, whether you have a PhD in it or you just do it on weekends, you could be a geologist, just not. You didn't go to school for it. You just like rocks, you know? So I guess one could argue that you are a demonologist as soon as you start to study demons. Um, but Ed called himself a lay demonologist. He would work with the church and he would explain how uh, some, in some cases, with like with exorcisms, he was part of the evidence gathering. Uh, that, you know, they would gather evidence that would be brought to the priests. In in Catholicism, you can't just knock on the door and get an exorcism. I mean, it's a huge process. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, the initially a, you would go to like your, your parish priest who would say, okay, I have to report this. If the priest believes you at all, even remotely, the priest has to then report into the diocese. The diocese, each diocese has a, um, a, a an investigator, and you don't necessarily know who that is. Then the investigator gets activated, who comes in and looks at the case. And if that person believes you at all, it gets kicked up to the archdiocese. And then and there's another level, and then it gets kicked up to Rome, and then Rome assigns an exorcist. So, so when the exorcism happens, it's the whole of the Catholic Church against this demon, um, if you believe in that. Now, we're talking about belief system here. Right. If I walk into someone's house and I say, "Ooh, I'm scared. There must be something evil here. I don't know. Sometimes we get scared at things that aren't evil at all. They're just there. Um, and so I always sort of struggled when when people start to use that label. But Ed was not shy about calling things demons and bringing holy water and, and um, you know, and, and involving the church and, and you know, getting as, as, as big as he could. And if you saw the Conjuring 3 movie, The Devil Made Me Do It, that I think was the culmination for Ed. 
of uh, his belief system, his religion, his life's work, and his love of media attention. Okay, so that is interesting there that you said that he actually gathers evidence. I want to talk a little bit more about that, if you know, Jeff, if he actually, um, because, okay, tell me if I'm wrong about that. So he was gathering evidence for, say he had a client or whatever, he was investigating their house and he felt that they needed an exorcism or maybe that person needed one. He would gather evidence in an effort to bring someone um, you said Rome. I thought maybe someone in in the United States would be oh, authorized to do it. Could but, be. Yeah, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, okay. So, so back back in um, before I forget it was it was the uh, I think it was the early 1970s. Uh, before the 1970s, every Catholic priest was taught the rite of exorcism. It was part part of the the standard you know standard fare when you went to get ordained. They would teach you all the rites, including exorcism. After the 1970s, it was no longer taught as a separate rite because the Catholic Church believed that baptism was in itself an exorcism, and that's enough. And if someone is really under demonic possession, of which the Catholic Church believes it's quite rare but possible, then they call in a special sequestered like monk that does this. Could be from Rome, could be that there's someone living in somewhere in the United States, but there's a slim chance it's that exorcist is in your town. Right. Like they're probably going to call someone in if it gets to that point. But to get to that point, you have to start with your local priest and then your diocese and then your archdiocese and then your, you know, your cardinal and then Rome and so on. There's a whole, you know, whole lot of uh, red tape to make it happen. Yeah, you are exactly right. They have to get a lot of permissions and it takes a long time. And I, I think a matter, I think also they, they require them to get some type of like mental evaluation. Yep. Don't they look at that and look at your medical records and, medical, and all that yeah. stuff? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could be, could be your medicine, right? I mean, and by the way, that's happening at a much lower level, right? That's your, if your local priest goes, whoa, there's something weird going on here. They call the diocese. The investigator's going to say, all right, that, that investigator would then start collecting the evidence. That investigator is probably a priest in your, in your diocese. So lives maybe like in your county, let's say. Uh, and that, that priest would say, well, I need a, a full medical evaluation. I need a full psychological evaluation. If both those pass muster, well, then they keep going. And if the, they say, oh, we could be on some conflicting medication here. Oh, all right. Well, let's fix that. And yay, no problem. And off we go. So yeah, th- that stuff's happening at a much lower level before Rome gets involved. Gotcha. Okay. Wow. Um, let me ask you this. You said that um, possession was rare. Okay. So, you know, the church that believes that true possession, true possession is, is rare. Mm-hmm. So how many cases of possession did ed and lorraine ever work on do you know well they from from you from talking to them it it was quite a lot right because that was sort of their forte like if you've got like a few interesting knocks on the wall that's great but you know that's not as juicy to them as like the the demonic possession cases where they're literally fighting evil i mean the conjuring three movie the devil made me do it the story of the glatzels and and um arnie johnson that uh that was that was their most famous because they literally tried to put the devil on trial and it made international news, a case that would have been, you would have never heard of it. It was, it was the first murder in Brookfield, Connecticut town history. And it was two drunk guys getting in a fight. One pulls out a knife. One of them slumps over and dies a few hours later in the hospital. That happens every damn day in some town, right? And you never hear about it because it's just open and shut. 
But it wasn't open and shut because of Ed and Lorraine Warren jumping in and saying, no, 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 no. Arnie isn't responsible for his actions. He was under demonic possession and they wanted to put the case uh, on trial and they wanted to put the devil on trial. And by the way, I think it was um, irresponsible, immoral what they did, Ed and Lorraine Warren, uh, wrong on every level. Um, you know, and, and all I can say to that is that if my loved one was the victim of someone being stabbed, I don't care what influence you're under. I mean, forget it. You held the knife. You killed the person. You're responsible. You know, the idea that you're going to use a religion to try to get someone off of a, of a major crime like that, it doesn't, it do, that doesn't sit well with me at all. Wow. It felt like more of a publicity stunt than really trying to do God's work. Got you. Now, that's an eye opener. Um, I didn't know that at all. Can you tell us, like, did they ever? T- wow. Do you want me to set up the case? Um, yes, please. Walk you through this? Sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it starts, okay, the town I grew up in, Newtown, Connecticut. Um, that's where this all started July 1st, 1980, when uh, 26-year-old Debbie Glatzel, uh, who was living with her seven-year-old son in Bridgeport, um, and with her friend Mary Johnson, who was a divorced woman who had three young girls, Debbie's dating an 18-year-old kid named Arnie Johnson. And they decide, uh, hey, let's rent this house in Newtown. We'll pool all our money together. And we can live in a house. We can get the kids away from Bridgeport. They can grow up in a nicer community. And uh, and Arnie Johnson's a tree surgeon, so there's a lot and, and landscaper. There's just more work for him out in the more rural parts of the state. So they they get to this house and they're going to rent it. And uh, the day they get there, uh, like like one half of the house is like this detached apartment is occupied by the landlord's daughter, and that's where mary was going to live and they're like oh this is not the deal what's going on so there's already a problem there's already something going on so uh they figure all right we'll, we'll work it out and they start to move in the next day debbie grew up in brookfield which is also a town touching Newtown on the other side um just a couple miles away so her family comes and her youngest brother david uh comes in and like hey bring these boxes back to the bedroom and then he does and he said some old man got into his face pushed him down uh, told him to go home, take down his religious medals, take down your your crosses and so on. And he was petrified, ran outside, wouldn't go back in the house again. Um, and so that night, uh, and also too, uh, Debbie's other brothers, I guess, sort of uh, felt something go on in that bedroom. That night, they slept at the, the Glatzel's house in Brookfield. And the kids start saying, hey, this weird stuff's going on. And, 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 I, and, and David's saying, I see the old man, the, the ghost. No one else saw him, right? So I see this old man. He's coming from Newtown. Now, he says he sees this thing, you know, miles away uh, in his mind's eye, I guess, coming to him. And then uh, he said it's here. He enters the house in, in Brookfield. And that's when uh, things start to get stranger and stranger. Something starts to affect 11-year-old David. And uh, the Glatzels are also devout Roman Catholics. They go to church. And so uh, as David starts to act strange, he starts talking in different voices. He's being attacked. He's being pushed and shoved and choked by, by you know, things they can't see. And so they go to their priests and, and they start saying, please help us. And the priests are saying blessings and they're leaving religious candles and so on. And eventually someone, you know, close by says, you should call Ed and Lorraine Warren. They live just over in Monroe. So it goes like Brookfield, Newtown, Monroe, right right in a row, those three towns. And and that's what would happen back then, right? If if, if you say your house is, if you're dealing with something you know scary, someone would know you should call the Warrens. And so the Warrens get involved about two weeks after it starts. And as they're walking up to the Glatzel house, um, they brought with them a, a medical doctor 
who, who tripped on the way to the house, just stumble. And when they walk inside, David said, um, you should be careful, you know, where you're walking. And now Ed's on high alert because he's like, either you were looking out the window and you saw that. But if you weren't looking out the window, uh oh, right, like only only some kind of demonic force could give you that kind of, um, you know, insight of things you just can't see. And Ed's interviewing the family and so on. And they they discover that um, Ed, Ed's believing this. Ed believes David is absolutely going through something demonic. And he starts to get involved with the priests. And he said, uh, you know, David starts to growl. He's speaking in Latin and other languages. He's levitating. He's getting attacked. And when uh, he asks David, you know, identify yourself, David screeches, I am Satan. I am Satan. Ed would tell you that there's stages of possession, which is like encroachment or permission is the first. It's the most mild. And then infestation where weird things are happening in the house. Oppression where the person is you know, uh, absolutely despondent and then diabolical possession, which is you're full on possessed. You're not in, uh, you, you don't have your own f- faculties anymore. And, and Ed is really pushing for an exorcism. He said, he's never seen a person move through these stages so quickly. It could take years to get through those stages. This kid's doing it in weeks. And at one point, uh, David's on the ground writhing around and Arnie Johnson, uh, you know, the, the, his, David's older sister's boyfriend leaps on top of him and says, pick on someone your own size, pick on me, and pushes the cross from his neck onto David's forehead as a way to say, like, hey, take me instead. And and that really scared Lorraine Warren. She's like, you don't ever invite a demon in. Uh, so eventually, September comes along, and they they don't – the major rite of exorcism is, is not authorized, but the minor rite is. And after I think it was two or three attempts – um, by mid-September 1980, the exorcism seems to be successful, and it seems to be over. Debbie and Arnie move into a different place in Brookfield, um, and then uh, it's it's February of 1981, just a few months later, and they're living in an apartment above a dog groomer, which is where Debbie works, and they get free rent, and everything seems to be okay. They're getting on their feet. And so uh, it's February 16th, and that day Debbie's boss says, hey, uh, let, let's let's go out for lunch. And they start drinking you know, at noon, and then the boss really likes to drink and keeps drinking. And by the evening comes, and he says, hey, let's get some pizzas and keep the party going. And they're like, well, let's go to your apartment because Debbie knows what's going to happen. He's going to get wasted and pass out and should rather he pass out in his apartment. And at one point, they're like, hey, it's time to go. Let's leave. Uh, Debbie's boss grabs Debbie and says, come on, stay. And then Arnie gets mad. They go downstairs uh, and suddenly they're in the dark and Debbie said something changed in her boyfriend's face. Arnie just, you know, his face completely changed. Uh, He pushed into uh, her boss and then her boss slumps over and she sees a glowing knife on the ground and Arnie Johnson just wandered away, walked off. And then she realizes her boss is bleeding, calls an ambulance. He dies a couple hours later. And the police find Arnie just wandering down the street. And he comes peacefully. They're like, hey, why don't you come with us? Hop in the car. Okay, yep. It doesn't seem to have any memory of what just happened. Uh, and it's the first murder in Brookfield history. The small town has never had a murder. And the police, it's open and shut. Couple of drunks getting a fight over a girl. Someone got stabbed. Someone died. You know, it, it, that should be the end of it. But then Ed and Lorraine Warren jump in and say, no, 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 no. Uh, he's under demonic possession because of what happened to, you know, Debbie's brother. And we're going to hire a Catholic lawyer. We're going to bring in priests. We're going to put the devil on trial. And what would have been a very quick and quiet small town you know, uh, case turned into international media. And, you know, as the Warren said, you believe in God, you put your hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth. So help me God, you must believe in the devil. 
and from there um, this this whole media circus starts to erupt around the case and people start asking some pretty tough questions wow that is unbelievable um okay so tell me okay you said that you were very upset understandably uh and you thought it was a more of a publicity stunt uh were others feeling the same way Oh, and I can tell you, uh, the most important person who felt the same way, the judge in the case. <laughs> really? <laughs> who, what did he uh, say? The judge he said, say? yeah, it was the, the, the judge, uh, Robert Callahan, had said right before the case started, he said, hey, number one, uh, we are absolutely not going to hear any of that testimony. Um, that was Salem in 1692, where you listen to, you know, uh, spectral evidence. That's not 1981, you know, here in Danbury, Connecticut. And so um, he said, we're not going to I'm not going to even entertain any of those arguments. Uh, the question is, who was holding the knife? Who did the deed and who died? W- whether he was acting under other in- influences, that's that's not for the court to decide. And that was the end of it. Um but the court of public opinion, of course, still still raged on and people were talking about, is there a God? Is there a devil? Um, and Ed and Lorraine Warren got got pretty famous for it. So famous, it was just made into a movie <laughs> last year. Right. It, it, that that came out. Um, so um, so so people never stopped talking about this case because they were like, well, the devil made me do it. Think think about this. K-Town had that judge said, OK, yeah, we'll allow this. We'll allow the whole thing. Let's bring in the priests and Ed and Lorraine Warren, put them all on the stand and talk about that it's real and there's demons and there's there's angels and all that other stuff. Every single person accused of murder in the United States from that case going forward would have made the argument the devil made me do it. Yeah. All of them, 100 percent without fail. You're right. All of them, because seriously, I think when most people commit the act of murder, not all. Some people, I think it's premeditated, thought out and they want to do it. But I think some people lose their cool in a really big way. They snap and they're not themselves and they do something awful. I remember interviewing a, um, a corrections officer at a, at a haunted prison once. And he was saying, he's like, you know, most of these inmates, they're, they're not they're, you'd hang out with them in different circumstances. You know, most he's like a couple of them were born evil. And if they're not in here, they're going to hurt people. Most of them, he said, the difference between you and them is like 30 seconds. And in 30 seconds, they made a decision, a horrible choice that forever altered their path and put them in here, right? And I'm on this side of the cage and they're on that side of the cage. It was just a, they, they snapped. They weren't themselves and they did something horrible, stupid, uh, you know, evil. And so that person could argue, yeah, the devil made me do it. I wasn't in control of myself. No, you weren't because you killed somebody. Uh, so I mean, everybody would have made that argument and the whole legal system would have collapsed on itself. And that judge knew it. And I think uh, it was nothing in the end, but mostly a publicity stunt. Arnie Johnson went to jail for manslaughter, uh, which is not an inappropriate um, sentencing for a first time offender who was drunk and in a fight. Uh, And then he served five years and was let out. And he's out to this day. Let me ask you something, though. Um, Do you believe in demonic? possession correct not so much you don't no okay so tell me why okay i've been i've been doing a lot of research on the devil lately um because he's a fascinating character and um you know the thing is uh, the reason i don't necessarily believe is that evil right is is uh is so hard to define um you think it's easy it's out like right now people are going no i can think of evil right now murder's evil Sure, but um, but that murder might have made someone else happy, 
it might not be evil to everybody, right? Like the, there was, uh, you could say uh, children dying of famine is evil. Well, is it? Or is that just sort of the natural order of things? Uh, we, in, at some point, you know, it, really old religions, God took care of everything. God or, or the deities, right? There, there is good and bad, uh, and, and it happens at their whim. You know what I mean? But at some point, religion, especially Christianity, moved toward God is good. God does all things good. So therefore, we need someone who's going to take care of the bad. And the devil has become the ultimate scapegoat. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I didn't mean to have another drink, but the devil made me do it. I didn't mean to kill my girlfriend's boss, but the devil made me do it. No, like that's shirking responsibility for your own actions. And so I think what happens is once we call something demonic or, or of the devil, what we're saying is we're putting our own religious viewpoint on it. The reality is we live in a world, uh, and, and I'm quoting Neil deGrasse Tyson on this one, where uh, he was talking about, it was, a, it was a great documentary on alien life, on like, well, if you look at Earth from space, it looks like this magical oasis, you know, of water and trees and food, and it's beautiful. Of course, I agree. However, as uh, Tyson pointed out, he said, there's as many things on this planet that will kill you <laughs> as will make you happy and keep you alive, right? Like you eat the right plant, it's delicious. Eat the wrong plant, it's poisonous, and you die. And so, you know, it, it, it made me think we've, our, our notion of, of good and evil, you know, that, that this idea that it's, we're locked into this eternal battle of like, you know, good versus evil, and one day good will win. I, it can't win. Because if there's no evil, then we don't know what good is. And if there's no good, then we don't know what evil is. So the good news for my religiously affiliated friends is that uh, your side will never lose. <laughs> yeah, I right? get it. Yeah. So, and, and so like, and, and so I, there's a, there's a Chinese parable and, and, um, that I think like sums this up and it's, it's a quick one, but, uh, it's, there's a story about an old farmer who had uh, worked his crops for many years. And one day his horse runs away and his neighbors seeing that say, Oh, that's, that's terrible luck. That's horrible. Uh, you must be so sad. And the farmer just says, we shall see. And the next morning the horse comes back, bringing two other wild horses with it. And the neighbors say, wow, what luck. This is great. Not only did the horse come back, but you have two more. This is, this is great fortune. And he says, well, we shall see. Then the next day, his son tried to ride one of the undamed horses. He was thrown, broke his leg, and then uh, couldn't help work the farm. And the neighbors say, oh, this is terrible. Uh, your, your poor son, what terrible luck you have. Of course, the farmer says, we shall see. And a week later, the military comes and they, they conscript all the young men in the village. But seeing his son's leg is broken, they pass him by. And the neighbors say, wow, what luck. Your son's leg was broken and doesn't have to serve in the military. That's such great news. And the man says, we shall see. Everything, every one of those acts can seem bad or evil, but then suddenly they were good. It's depending on what you look at it and how much time goes by. Um, and so that's to me the, the concept of yin and yang, you know, that there's this balance of what we perceive as good or bad or what that will make us live or, or what that'll kill us. The devil's inside of us and I think becomes uh, a, a scapegoat, a, a way to, to shirk our responsibilities for our own actions and blame it on something else. We are responsible for us. And so I really struggle with the idea that there's this demon down there causing COVID and, and trying to get me to eat more cookies after dinner because I shouldn't eat them. You know what I mean? Like, I just I, I struggle with that that idea um, that anything that's scary or smells like sulfur 
<laughs> is uh, is coming from this otherworldly uh, beast uh, that is seemingly an equal and opposite God in a, in a world that's supposed to be monotheistic. It sure doesn't seem to me to be monotheistic if you believe in a devil. That is really interesting. I didn't. Wow, you're surprising me today, Jeff. Um, what? What? Real quick, and I know we we're coming to the end of the hour, but let me ask you something. Like, okay, so you you um, said that uh, Ed had noted that some some of these people were levitating and all mm-hmm. this stuff. I, I, I've never seen anything like visual evidence out there. Maybe there is some, I have no idea. I know that there, there were cameras available then, you know, at that time. Sure. Yeah. Uh, um, well, right. But not, not like no one had cell phones where you could just whip it out and say, okay, quick, put it on video. Right. So it wasn't yeah, like but that. Did they set up cameras at all? Did they ever get any type of video evidence or anything like that? They, uh, at Amityville, I think they had, there's a still photo of what looks like a young boy. Um, that you can find that online if you just sort of Google like Ed and Lorraine Warren Amityville House ghost photo, like you'll you'll find it. And um, there's a photo that they say was a boy that wasn't there when they took the picture. Uh, in later years, the Warrens often used video cameras in their their investigations, and once in a while they they caught something strange. Um, uh, Ed showed me a video that they caught in a, a cemetery in Connecticut that blew me away. He had because I've been to this cemetery. I know it. It's not wasn't that far from where I grew up. And he he was at nighttime. He set this the video camera. This is the 80s now. So video cameras, you know, VHS tapes, they're bigger, but they're also accessible. Uh, and he he set this camera up, and this white wispy form starts to take shape, like you know maybe 20 30 feet in front of the camera, and it's moving around headstones, coming toward the camera. And I would even go so far as to call it a feminine shape, like it looked sort of feminine. And then it just gets kind of sucked down into the ground. Whole video was like six seconds, maybe, but that's a long time, right? That's an eternity. And and I looked at that and I was like, man, you know, if Spielberg didn't help you with that, then I don't know how to explain what I just saw, you know. So they have captured video evidence, but that. That thing I saw in the video, I wouldn't call it good or evil. It was just there, right? It did nothing, nothing good. It did nothing bad. It just existed. Um, but it blew me away. That was the most compelling footage I think I've ever seen in the paranormal. Do you think that um, it's possible, like, for someone to? Um, well, let me. Have you ever heard of a case that you think is a genuine case of someone actually levitating? Yeah, you know, until I see it with my own eyes, or or like a really well done video. Um, I've, I've heard it. Sure. I've heard of it, but you know, I, there's always a, a skeptic in me. That's like, I really need to see it to believe it. Um, so until I see someone levitate, I, I'm going to just keep the jury out on that. Okay. That is interesting. Okay. And let me ask you something about your own, um, your own research. I mean, have you ever come across a case or something that really like shook you? Big time? <laughs> sure. Um, because you know, it doesn't matter at the end what I believe. It doesn't matter if I believe in a devil or, or don't believe in a devil. Um, you know, for example, there there were some cult murders that took place not too far from me here in Massachusetts uh, in the 1980s. And uh, you could say there's no such thing as a devil, but uh, several young girls were murdered, sacrificed in the name of the devil. You tell their families there's no such thing, right? I, I'm not going to argue with them. Of, that those those kids died because the person who did the murder, Carl Drew, um, believed in a devil and believed that this would give him power if he did this. And so, uh, on the one hand, we have the power to believe things into reality, 
And so when I say I don't necessarily believe in a devil or demons, I do believe in people. And I believe we can do things that are unspeakably horrible. Um, although maybe not horrible for 100%, maybe it's like 99.9, which is enough to get us to mostly agree. But at the same time, you know, you hear stuff like that, uh, where, where people believe in a thing so much that it becomes their reality and they're willing to kill for it. They're willing to die for it. They're willing to do horrible, terrible things. Um, to me, that's really frightening. That that's the scariest thing of all, like those, those kind of cult cases that we hear about from time to time. Yeah. Oh, wow. Did they catch him? Yeah. Oh yeah. He went to jail, uh, Carl drew and, um, and, and in fact, I know, I know where his, uh, his, his little shack out in the woods, like what's, what's left of it is, mm -hmm. um, is still out there. And that's where, you know, at least one of the murders took place. You don't, you don't do any, you don't write any true crime books or anything like that, do you? No. So my podcast, uh, New England Legends, we, we do cover some true crime stories, uh, from time to time. And, um, you know, I get it. There's a lot of crossover, right? Between true crime and paranormal. Uh, because when something horrific happens, it literally haunts us, you know, um, whether you want to believe in ghosts or not, like if there's an unsolved murder that took place in that house over there, that's going to gnaw at you for as long as we remember it, as long as we talk about it. And so, uh, so I, I get how closely related they are. What about haunted crime scenes? Have you ever done anything? Oh, like well, I mean, sure. Like, uh, you know, the Lizzie Borden house comes to mind, you know, in, in Fall River, Massachusetts. That was a crime scene. Two people were murdered. No one was ever punished for that. And uh, it's, it's um, you know, that that's the kind of thing that literally haunts us. It's who did it and why? Well, probably Lizzie, but was she alone? You know, why did she do it? Was, was there something awful going on in the family or, you know, was there some other motive? These are the things that sort of drive us crazy. And the reason a story sticks around, uh, in, in my experience anyway, is often when we don't know everything. And, and not only that, when we can't know everything, because if we knew everything, then that just closes the book. It's these open books that, that gnaw at us, that keep us talking, that keep us wondering, investigating, yeah. checking it out, doing stories, doing podcasts, doing movies and books and so on. That's the unknown uh, is so much more frightening because we don't have all the answers yet and we may never have them. That's awesome. I love talking to you. This has flown by. This is like quick, so quick. <laughs> I want you to take a moment, Jeff, to tell my listeners, you know, about your podcast, how they can listen to it and keep up with any other books you're working on. Yeah, well, so it's uh, the podcast is called New England Legends. You can get it wherever you listen to your podcast. It's, uh, it's short uh, stories each week. They're scripted. We've got sound effects and voice actors and music. Um, just some strange tales of ghosts, monsters, aliens, and odd history from New England each week. My website is my name, jeffbelanger.com, and uh, I've got tons of events coming up. Uh, I do a speaking tour in the fall. Some of them are, are online and available everywhere. Some are, you know, most of them are in person. So I'm always doing that. My books are wherever you get your books, Amazon or, or local bookstores, you can ask for them there. And um, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just so blessed that I get to do this. And and Ghost Adventures and, and the Shock Docs are on the Discovery Plus app if you've got that. So, um, so yeah, just grateful that I, I get to do this and, and talk about my favorite subject. So thank you for having me. Absolutely, Jeff. Many blessings to you. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I invite you to follow my other podcast, Mysterious Radio. Please share this show with others that are interested in the paranormal. I want to give a special thanks to our co-creator and executive producer, Kim Kyle, who brought this show to you today. 
and working hard behind the scenes, our team of four. I want to thank them as well. I am your host, K-Town, and you're listening to Paranormal Fears. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.